This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Well, it seems like winter has finally set in, and the last thing on my mind, at least, is going outside to hear the birds singing. There aren't too many around anyway, at least not the ones with the nice songs. But if you do miss the melodious sounds of birds during the winter months, today you are in luck. Sort of. It might sound like a donkey or a party horn, but that is the display call of the male Magellanic penguin. Alan Clark's been studying these penguins, who live down in Argentina, for a number of years. Specifically, he's been studying their songs. Clark is an assistant professor of animal ecology and conservation biology at Fordham. And today on the show, he is joining me in the studio to talk about his work with the penguins. We'll also hear a few more of their fabulous-sounding calls. If your taste in birdsong is a little bit more traditional, we'll have something for you as well. A little later on the show, we'll visit a canary singing contest. But first, penguins are what environmental conservationists call a charismatic species. Like polar bears, tigers, and pandas, their visual appeal makes the case for conservation in a way that a slug, a beetle, or a microorganism just can't do. And penguins especially have been receiving a lot of attention in the last few years, thanks to films like March of the Penguins and Happy Feet. I spoke to Alan Clark about the penguins that he studies and about his love for the birds in general. Alan Clark, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you work with penguins and the songs that they sing? I do. I've been studying Magellanic penguins for the last decade down in Argentina. And although I'm looking at all of their ecology, I focus primarily on their vocalizations, or I like to say their songs. So tell me tell me about their songs. Well, the song is actually not something you might expect. They're, it sounds a lot like a donkey braying, this particular species. In fact, a nickname for them is the jackass penguin because they sound like donkeys. And because they behave horribly at parties. Often. Yes. <laughs> so what, what do they communicate through the songs? Well, one of the things I've been looking at is how these songs are used. and they, they sing, vocalize constantly, especially at the beginning of the breeding season. And in fact, the noise is deafening at the colony at the beginning of the breeding season as males advertise for a mate. In this particular species at the colony I study, it's the females who choose the mate, and the males spend a lot of time advertising. So I wondered, well, why do they sing all the time? Why are they constantly advertising? So I began to examine that question. And what did you find? Well, one of the first things I decided to look at is, can they actually tell each other apart just by their voice? And what I've seen is sometimes I'm standing in the colony watching, and I see a female wandering through the colony. And this is a scrub desert. So this isn't Antarctica with icebergs. This is a small scrub desert. So the visibility isn't very good. And so these females are wandering between the shrubs. And all of a sudden, they perk up their head, and they make a beeline to some male that they can't even see. I assume it's because they can hear him. And I figure, well, what are they hearing? Do they recognize it? Is there something really exciting about that particular call? So I begin to examine whether or not they could tell each other apart just by their voice. And what did you find? Well, what I found is that when I played a female who was incubating her eggs, the call of her mate, the call of a neighbor, and the call of a stranger, they reacted very differently. When I played the call of a stranger to her, she did nothing. 
When I played the call of a neighbor, she did nothing. But when I played her mate call, she would often leap up off her eggs and run out of the nest thinking that her mate was home and would relieve her. Because in this species, the female takes the first incubation stint on the eggs while the male goes at sea. So by the time the male comes back to the, from the sea, she's actually been on land for about a month without eating or drinking. So she's very anxious for him to get home. And I actually feel a little guilt about uh, giving her the call without the bird actually being there. But it did show that they can actually tell they're made from other birds. I think a lot of us are familiar with penguins from, uh, you know, maybe David Attenborough or more likely The March of the Penguins or that movie Happy Feet. It might be useful here for you to tell me what their sort of life cycle is like, what their what their incubation is like and things like that. And then we can talk about how the call fits in. Sure. Um, Magellanic penguins spend their winter out at sea somewhere, maybe off the coast of Rio. Nobody really knows for sure. But literally hundreds of thousands to millions of Magellanic penguins disappear into the sea during their winter. So it's pretty much only when they're on land that we know much about them because it's so much easier to study them. But what we know is that in late August, early September, males appear at the colonies, and they begin establishing territories, making nests, which for this species is either a burrow or under a shrub. And then a week, week and a half later, the females begin to arrive, and the females select mates or they return to their old mate. And um, then, you know, the romance season begins, and anywhere from 10 to 13 days later, the first egg appears, and then four days later, the second egg appears. And that's all you get in this species, there's two eggs. And about 40 days later, the eggs hatch. And in that meantime, the parents take turns um, incubating and then feeding the chicks. And uh, it takes two to raise a chick. The the duties are split 50-50. And if all goes well... Um, somewhere in mid-January to late February, the chicks will be full-grown, and they will head to sea. And after that, the adults molt, and then they disappear back into the ocean. So they mate for life or for a season, depending on their mood? They can mate for life. There's about a 20% divorce rate in this species. And your chances of getting divorced are much higher if you weren't successful at raising any chicks. It's very hard to raise a penguin chick, Is for anybody who's seen any of the, um, you know, March of the Penguins type movies. And so for um, Magellanic penguins at our colony, on average they raise a half a chick a year. And that's only to fledging. And even after they fledge, survival rates are pretty low. So if you weren't able to raise a chick successfully to get one to fledge, at the end of the season, then the female is far more likely to um, divorce you and pick a new mate the next year because it all depends on timing. And if your current mate, the timing doesn't quite match yours exactly, maybe it's best to try a new mate. There's an exception that's actually very interesting, and that's in a year when everybody fails, say there was you know bad climatic conditions or rainstorms that flooded all the burrows and so forth, um, is sort of you get a buy. So the female won't necessarily divorce you if you fail in a season when everybody fails. So these penguins, you said they're not on like an ice flow or anything like that. They're just on, you said it was scrub desert? That's correct. And they can nest anywhere from right alongside of the ocean into as far as a kilometer. So these aren't the kind of penguins that are, you know, transversing dozens or hundreds of kilometers to get to their nest. They're actually nesting fairly close to the shore along both coasts of southern South America. And is it very cold there? It's not. Um, it can freeze at the beginning of the season, but not every year. And it can get warm. In fact, one of the greatest killers of penguin chicks, and sometimes adults, is heat stroke. And so that's why a burrow, if you can dig a tunnel underground, it's much cooler. And it also gives you greater protection from predators. 
So how are these penguins different and similar from the ones that, you know, I guess probably emperor penguins that we'd be really familiar with? Well, the Magellanic penguin is quite a bit smaller. It's what we would call a medium-sized penguin, and it's got several closely related species, the African penguin, the Humboldt penguin in Peru, and the Galapagos penguin in the Galapagos Islands. Those four species are very closely related and look quite a bit alike. But they are pretty much all prefer to um, burrow when they can to make their nests. Well, let's talk more about the uh, the jackass penguin. What does their call sound like? What I guess it sounds a little bit like a donkey, but could you give us some kind of a indication of what it might actually sound like? There's several different types of calls. There's the call that the males do when they're advertising, and that's the one that sounds most like a donkey, you know, the ha-ha-ha-ha kind of thing that you are used to hearing. And then there's a duet that pairs perform, which is a, a lovely, um, tightly overlapping duet that synchronizes at the end. <laughs> And then there are the calls that uh, chicks make when they're begging from their parents. And some of my research has also shown that those chicks recognize and can discriminate between the calls, the duets of their parents versus stranger pairs. Because if you're a chick, it's really important to be able to recognize your parents because your parents leave you alone for days and days at a time. And you don't want to beg to the wrong parent because parents get very possessive of their food and actually violence may ensue if you beg to the wrong bird. What do they literally communicate through the calls? I think I've shown pretty clearly that they can recognize each other individually, which isn't really a surprise. What's interesting is that when you have all of these calls happening simultaneously, what are the females who are doing the the choosing here as far as mates are concerned? What are they hearing? And I have examined that in quite a bit of detail. And what I've done is I've taken some of these uh, advertising calls from hundreds of males and literally analyze thousands of them. And I measure all kinds of things about them, how long they are, what's the uh, the lowest pitch, you know, in the bray part, and how long is the bray. And so I've measured 30 different parameters, you might call it, on thousands of calls. And what I found is that every one of the parameters I measured is able to code individually specific information. That doesn't prove that the females can perceive it, but it shows that the potential is there. And when I have taken those measurements and correlated some measures of male quality, say their size, their age, their nest quality, their reproductive success, what I've shown is that you can indeed tell something about a guy just by his voice. Being out in the field, I can recognize some individuals myself, even though I am not a penguin. I'm able to tell a few individuals just because their voices are unique enough for even my relatively untrained ears to discriminate. But I had noticed in the field that the really old birds, birds that are 20, 25 years old, sounded a little different. And so instead of a nice strong ha, 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 it sounded like ha, 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 ha. They were shorter, like maybe they'd been chain-smoking for 20 years. And um, it was just a very different type of call. And so I think that information is in the calls for females. And so if they're looking for an older penguin, um, an experienced male, rather than some young bird without experience, she should be able to tell that just by his call. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Alan Clark. Clark's an assistant professor of animal ecology and conservation biology at Fordham. In a few minutes, we'll visit a canary singing contest in Livonia, Michigan. But first, let's hear the rest of that conversation. Tell me about your fieldwork in Argentina. 
Well, most of my research in Argentina has been at one of two sites. The primary site has been the subject of a long-term research by my Ph.D. advisor, D. Borsma, since 1982. So there's a huge long-term data set, which is marvelous if you're trying to analyze questions that address questions of time, like old birds versus young birds, how long relationships last, and those sorts of fascinating questions. This colony is the largest Magellanic penguin colony in the world. It has between 175 and 200,000 breeding pairs, which during the breeding season means that you might have as many as a million birds at the same time in the colony, including chicks. The other colony I study at is a little further south in Argentina, and it's a small colony of about 25,000 pairs. And we look at a lot of the same questions. But over the, since 1983, this uh, penguin project at the reserve, Punta Tombo, this large penguin colony, um, researchers have banded over 60,000 birds, making it one of the largest banding projects in the world of any species of bird. So we've been able to learn a tremendous amount through Dr. Borsma's long-term study. And I've been part of that um, as part of my doctoral dissertation research. So how did you get into this? After I finished law school, I had one of those wonderful fellowships where they say, we'll give you a lot of money if you, if you go do something interesting. So I proposed to go to Australia and New Zealand and study field biologists. And so one of the first people I interviewed was a field biologist working with yellow-eyed penguins in New Zealand, which is a very endangered penguin species. And once you've set your eyes on these creatures, at least for me, it was impossible to forget it. And I can remember very distinctly saying in my own mind, if this lawyer thing doesn't work out, I want to study penguins. And that's precisely what eventually happened. What do you think about movies like uh, Happy Feet and things like that that personify the penguins? Do you think that's a good thing or do you think it's a bad thing? Well, I must start with The March of the Penguins because that sort of was the first of the big penguin movies, you know, ranging from Happy Feet to Madagascar. I think that March of the Penguins, it's it's surprising in the amount of attention and focus it got because natural history and how life survives, in particularly in harsh climates, is such a compelling story. It grabbed almost everyone who saw it. It truly is a compelling life history. And while not all species have such harsh environments they live in, if you examine almost any species, you'll, you'll be able to see some fascinating, interesting, and heartbreaking and heartwarming aspects of the lives of all creatures and all plants. And so I think that that was a, a marvelous thing to happen. It pro- provided so much attention on penguin species as well as the Antarctic environment in addition to conservation. So I think that that was a marvelous thing that got a lot of people really excited by penguins. And penguins have always been popular in and of themselves. This, however, I think really gave a boost to the idea of penguins as um, a focal point for conservation and environmental interest. So when you got to movies like Happy Feet and Madagascar, I thoroughly enjoyed them. The liberties that are taken are to be expected. You know, it's sort of like the new movie um, with the bees. They only have two body segments. They can't possibly be a true insect. Um, and the legs are wrong, And but who cares? And so understanding anything about the natural world, especially in our age of digitization, where we spend more time indoors, focused on small screens, I think it's really important to continue to try to make connections in any way we can with the outside world because people need to get outside more. 
And so I think that these kind of movies, as far-fetched as they may be, I mean, a surfing penguin is not something that one might imagine. But if it piques the interest of children or adults, then I think it it's, serves a, a much greater purpose than pure entertainment. So you don't sit in the movie theater saying a penguin would never say that. Oh, of course I do. I do that all the time. I love anthropomorphizing. I know that's not necessarily rigorous scientifically, but I think people are animals. And when we talk about animals, it's okay to talk about them in terms that we can relate to. And so I do that because I think it's an effective mechanism of communication. In my classroom, even in scientific meetings, sometimes it's just easier to talk about things the way you see them and feel them rather than couch them in all sort of qualifications that you might do as a lawyer or a scientist. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to be able to uh, talk about species in ways that we can relate to. Why are these penguins something that we should care about aside from their cuteness? Well, they, they are inherently cute, and that may alone be reason enough to care about them. Penguins have special meaning to me, and as I do think for many people, I'm an ardent conservation biologist, and I recognize the value in symbolic species. It's important for people to be able to relate to nature on some level, and often these charismatic species do speak to people. That's why we call them charismatic is because that's exactly what they do. And I am certainly uh, part of that same group of people who are fascinated by a particular group. I'm an ardent birder, and I love birds, and I'm passionate about penguins. But I'm concerned more deeply about bigger issues of conservation. And um, penguins provide a wonderful way to look at the world. Um, They are sentinels of of climate change. They uh, help focus people's attention on issues of nature and conservation. So they're, they're really important that way. And how are your penguins doing? They are doing fairly well. The colony that I study at has been declining its population by about a percent a year. So even this colony is in somewhat of a serious decline. However, there are colonies north of this reserve, which used to be the most northerly penguin colony. There are now new colonies developing north of Punta Tombo. So whether or not the species overall is doing poorer or not is not really clear. But they are important symbols. When um, there were proposals uh, 25 years ago to use penguins to make golf gloves and to harvest eggs for consumption, the Argentine people um, rejected that soundly, even though they were in the midst of very strong and dangerous political turmoil internally. Nonetheless, they cared enough about penguins to take a stand and say no. And that was sort of the genesis of the Penguin Project that I've been working on. So symbolically, then, a whole series of reserves was developed along the Argentine coast. So even though it's just one species that may not directly affect anybody else's life in some strong economic way, um, it does more and more so as as ecotourism. The reserve I've been working at, Punta Tombo, has more visitors than the Galapagos Islands. Seventy to 85,000 people will visit this colony this, this breeding season during those six months. So they are becoming an important economic force. But they also help you get a gauge of the their role in the greater environment. Um, climate change has a very strong effect. There are some years when these penguins don't have enough food to feed their young, and the season is pretty much a complete failure. And the causes of that, of course, are never easy to just pinpoint and say, this is exactly what happened. We know there wasn't enough food. We don't always know exactly why. And right now in Argentina, as much of the world, um, fishing industry is in trouble. 
And so the some of the larger fish stocks are disappearing, and they are considering developing a fishery in anchovies. And anchovies are Magellanic penguins' favorite food. It's also the favorite food of the Humboldt penguin on the other side of South America. And the Humboldt penguin is now a threatened species. And one of the main reasons, um, aside from habitat destruction, is that 98% of the anchovy industry or, or anchovy crop, you might say, is harvested. And on the other side, very few fisher have been harvesting anchovies, but now they're considering retrofitting their fishing fleets to harvest anchovies, and that could have a tremendous impact on not just the penguins but other species. So keeping track and understanding the needs of penguins can actually have much broader impacts. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that if people are able to see something that interests them, that cares about them, that gets them outside... I think that they will have fuller, richer lives. I'm fascinated by a book on, it's called Nature Deficit Disorder, about how our children are losing the ability to connect with the natural world. And if without that connection, I think we're going to lose the political support to preserve our natural world as greater pressures because of growing populations and greater resource consumption. So I'm just hoping that no matter how interesting or uninteresting or charismatic or not charismatic a species is, I just people find something to help them go outside and look. Well, Alan Clark is an assistant professor of animal ecology and conservation biology at Fordham. Alan, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look at loss, from lost love to lost stuff. That's ahead at 730 Now, although the call of the male Magellanic penguin might set his lady on fire, some of us prefer a call that is more traditionally pretty, like that of the American singer Canary. The Canary was bred specifically for its sweet song, and many of the 41 chapters of the American Singer Club hold contests to determine whose song is sweetest. One of the biggest competitions takes place in Livonia, Michigan. Where's Freddy? Where's Freddy? It's Saturday morning at the Dragon Song Trials... The judging is underway and will continue until at least 7 o'clock tonight. I don't know. Birds coming through. My name is Jesse Durkin, and I am the treasurer of the Dragon Chapter 22 of the American Singers Club. The Dragon Club stands for the determined renaissance of the American singer canary through growth and organization of the novice. We try to specifically tune for beginners, get out information, try to attract new fanciers. Oh, and you have exact change. I love it. Our show is pretty much typical, and entry fees would be $2 a bird. Total birds in the show, 245. I personally brought 14, because that's the limit. Mike Groman's my name. I'm from Saginaw, Michigan. I've been a member of the club since 1982. This is a big show. This show is probably the biggest in the nation. And I was lucky to win last year. In a way, I hope somebody else does it this year so they get the same excitement. <laughs> I've enjoyed retirement. At one time, I was a woodcarver. I raised roses and I raised canaries. But first, I cut the wood carving, and then I slowed down on the roses. But I have to keep doing one thing. Three things were just too much. I duck hunt, and so I train mine up at the hunting camp. What you want is exposure to people. 
move them around, getting used to touching the cage. And I play Mozart. <laughs> they love Mozart. And I started out on Willie Nelson. That doesn't work. <laughs> as much as I like Willie Nelson. <laughs> this bird has a fault that every once in a while it'll open its mouth and go, that's a fault, but it has freedom, which means it sings a lot. It has a lot of variety. You can breed that bird to another line that's quiet, and you'll breed out that. So the young will have that freedom, but it won't have that obnoxious note. Okay, we are now proceeding to judge eight birds in the chapel has been converted into a bird judging room, which consists of fluorescent lights about four foot over the birds with a white sheet backdrop so that you can see the bird's throat when they sing. One bird per cage. They're set before the judge um, eight feet away. He sits eight feet away. And in there we have to be quiet because he has to concentrate on the song, and any noise distracts him and he'll look at you funny. <laughs> they're given a few minutes to settle down, and the first 10 minutes, they're judged on freedom. My name's Don Taylor. I'm an American singer club judge. Well, freedom, simply, uh, how much do they sing? And a score of 10 is they sing once every minute for 10 minutes, and that's the first part of a 20-minute judging session. And then they have another 10 minutes, and that is rendition period, and that's judged on what they sing quality of the song, the variety, the tone, the different number of songs. Some birds sing you know, 13, 14 different songs. And whether they'll sing them all in one day is, 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 depends on the bird. Some of these birds, it's just like they create the song, but it's never the same. And they'll go slower and faster. And you can just tell they really enjoy singing and creating a, a musical masterpiece the Mozarts and Beethoven and Chopin's of the bird world. Okay. Number three is in first place. Well, he missed the fault. I heard it. Number nine all the way to the end, in second. Had he heard it. It wouldn't have been first place. The finder is in third place. As I said, it has a great song and lots of freedom. And even if it's, it's stopped to eat, no, it shouldn't even do that. But he still liked it. 486. 483. They'll get a first, second, third for every class of eight birds. That doesn't mean they're the best in show. That means they were just the best in that group. And then at the end of the day, when we've transferred all the scores, we pick the best ten in show. My name is Mike Griffin. I've been a member for three years now. Cage 483 is my bird, and uh, he needs four more points to be a grand champion. And he doesn't even need to be best in show to get his grand championship. He just needs to be number three, two, or one. And that's all I'm looking for. A grand champion is a bird who accumulates 20 points. So our show, the top bird will win six points. And five, four, three, two is for the top six places. And there's no set time limit on it. You can show a bird that's four years old and still develop a grand champion. But he has to have one first place win, and he has to accumulate a total of 20 points. And then it's a grand champion. Time for the next class. 
Now, occasionally you get a really loud bird and you cover them up so they'll stop singing. So you have some white cloth that you put over an individual cage if there's a really screecher bird that you're, it's just annoying you. But then you can concentrate on maybe a quieter bird. I needed a placing in this class to become a grand champion. When the judge covered up that bird, I was absolutely shocked and devastated. That bird was doing nothing but what he does. And he's three times best in show, and he picked a bird that's never placed at all. And to cover up a bird like that, I'm just shocked by that. A lackluster class. Yeah, a lackluster class. Well, and I'll have to say that's a lackluster judge. We're trying to do the best job for these birds, and we're trying to pick out uh, the best one for today. And if your bird's too loud, uh, well, please, you just need to breed some quieter birds. Ten minutes to nine. The judging is all over. Now comes the, the fun part, giving out the awards. It's what everybody waits for. It's sort of like the Oscars, and the winner is. And the best bird in show was Cage 211 with a score of 91.5, and he is bred by Roger Strowman. Well, there's always a next show, so keep me coming back, I guess. Can't win them all. I have no complaints. The fault bird that has the funny... <laughs> when it did it the only one time during the show, and the judge had his head down. So it placed ninth in the show, which is pretty spectacular because that's out of 245 birds. And it's now um, 10 minutes to 10, and it's all over, and you can kind of hear in the background people are packing up their birds, and all the scores will be recorded. And we pack up and go home and do it all again next year. And we all have to vacuum up all the bird seed that everybody has left behind. So if you're feeling uh, generous, grab a vacuum. <laughs> when the songbirds keep singing like they know the score. And I love you, I love you, I love you like never That story on the Canary Song Trials produced by Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister for Long Haul Productions. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.